So what do you do when you and your family are in a mess? What do you do when you and your family are in a mess? And you say, John, how do you know? If this is intersecting with you already, that's the Holy Spirit. I'm just preaching through Nehemiah. What do you do when your family's in a mess? Do you ignore it? Do you just pretend like there's nothing wrong? We call that living in what? Denial, Denial, right? Some of us just try to live in a different way when our families are in a mess. We try to just accept it, you know? We accept creepy Uncle Sari, Uncle, Uncle Harry, right? And uh, more on a sad note, we maybe accept things like Aunt Allie, who has a drinking problem. She's pretty functional, but she's harming a lot of people. Some of us actually don't either accept it or live in denial. We just try to avoid it altogether, and we run away. And we're like, ah, I only share a last name with this person, right? I don't want anything to do with this person. What do we do when our family's in a mess? We forget that we carry our DNA with us, whether by nurture or nature, we all have a sin nature and... Many things that happen in our family are passed down to us. In fact, family traits, we could say, seem to be stowaways in our baggage when we run away from our family problems. We can't get away from them. So today, by the grace of God, we're going to deal with them. I believe only God's word can help us ultimately heal and restore our families. Nehemiah believed this. Nehemiah believed that God was the solution to his family's problems. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read about what Nehemiah did. In fact, what he prayed when he discovered his family's problems. Now you might think, well, what is this guy who lived in Persia 2,500 years ago have to do with me? Like, Persia is in modern-day Iran halfway around the world. So what does this have to do with me? He says it has lots to do with you. Well, it has lots to do with me. This prayer, the Nehemiah prayers, I believe we can own, we can take on ourselves. As we study through Nehemiah, we're going to find that Nehemiah is really an attempt to seek God for restoration, to restore the barriers that were once torn down. It's part of the third book in what we're calling our build series, the Master's Plan 4.0, as we try to recreate our property. And we started uh, a year ago, last fall, we started in, in Haggai, the book of Haggai, and then this past spring in Ezra. Then we took a little uh, foray into the Beatitudes this past summer, and now we're in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a, a, a book that I think really can help us and we can relate to, especially when it comes to our families here in chapter 1. So you say, well, I don't have many, much family. I don't, I don't see them anymore. They're gone. Can I just encourage you, today is still a day that can help you. Because Nehemiah was very much distant from his family. Nehemiah was a single person. Wasn't married, we believe. 
and yet he still prayed these prayers. So why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word, and we're going to see how we should pray when our family is in a mess. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 5, and going through the end of the chapter. And if you don't um, know where that is, you can look it up in the table of contents, or Google it, or look on your smartphones. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And I said, literally I prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now may pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are dispersed, be under the furthest skies. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power. I love that. And by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. Delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. May God give us mercy. May he give us success found through his word. You may be, you may be seated. Let me summarize this passage, first of all, with, with an axiom or a true statement before I get to an overall direction and, and, and recap and summary of the passage. If I was going to say this in a sentence, I would say it this way. Powerful people go to the most powerful God acknowledging their sin and powerlessness. Say it again. Powerful people go to the most powerful God acknowledging their sin and powerlessness. And some of you might say, well, John, that really doesn't help me much because I don't feel really powerful. Uh, not that rich. Um, don't know a lot of people. Not connected enough. Haven't lived here long enough. So how's this going to help me? I think the key word there is the powerlessness. See, one of the great truths and the irony that we find in the scriptures is we find in places like 2 Corinthians 12 where the apostle Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When we acknowledge that we are weak and we go to God, we find just an untapped explosion of power greater than any nuclear uh, weapon. It's because God is all-powerful. And I'm guessing that there are some of you here today, in fact, I know, because some of you have talked to me, that you're bringing in here a mess. Right? You're bringing in here a mess. Boy, God is bigger than that. God can help us. I love our great God. It's when we seek power from Him, not people, not possessions, not popularity, that we find help. His help. And here's the life-changing sentence that will transform my life God's been working on me, and I hope it will, he, he will in your life as well. When your family and you are in a mess, take your sin to God and confess. 
say that again. When you, your family and you are in a mess, take your sin to God and confess. And say, well, confess what? There's three things here. Confess how great and awesome God is in his love for you. Uh, two, how much you, you need him and your family to take care of your sin problem. And thirdly, how God is the only one powerful enough to restore you and to make you successful. Let's unpack these a little bit, and I'll break them down. You can, you'll, you'll see this right from the text as I, I walk us through. Let's start in verse 5, what it says here. He starts off, and Nehemiah says, And I said, or I prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, I find this kind of peculiar that Nehemiah would start here. And the reason why is because he's the cupbearer. That's what we read at the very end of, of verse 11, right? Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So why would this cupbearer start by praying to God? And you say, well, what's the big deal about a cupbearer? Well, a cupbearer, a cupbearer was um, not just uh, like a, uh, a supersized, uh, amazing waiter um, bartender. A cupbearer was actually second in can- command and second most trusted person in the kingdom because they were the last line of defense against any assassination attempts on the king. They were to taste all the food, um, all the wine, all the drink that would pass through the king's lips. It was supposed to go through, first of all, the cupbearer's lips. They would taste this to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And so the, this, this role of cupbearer was, was very trusted. And Nehemiah would have been very trusted. He had access to the king. He maybe even governed parts of of, of the land. You would have thought, well, hey, you know what? I don't really need to pray. I got connections in high places. And maybe that you find yourself in a position where you haven't been praying as much because you're connected. You, you know people. You know how to fix things. You're smart. You have education. Can I just challenge you today that you need to do what Nehemiah did? He went to God. I ask this question of you, is your first appeal and is my first appeal is to appeal to those you know who are powerful or to God who is the most powerful? See, God loves it when you do end runs around powerful people. You can get in trouble a lot of times if you do an end run around somebody at work, right? You know, your immediate supervisor and you're like, I'm just going to go to someone higher up. You can get in trouble for that. But not with God. You can do end runs around the most powerful people and go to the most powerful who's God, who's sovereign, who is in control and has authority over all things. God loves it when you do that. And he can turn the heart of the king. So do that end run today and seek God with your mess and with your problems. This is what Nehemiah did with his, with his family and nation's mess. He he came to God essentially empty-handed. And he's like, God, you're the one who can help me. You're the one who can help me. Now, what does he do? Let's look at this more carefully at verse 5. What does he do? He starts off, does he start off with a request? Does he start to asking God for things? 
No, the first thing he does is he actually acknowledges who God is. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Again, this is another peculiar thing about Nehemiah. Instead of just going to the king, he went, goes to the king of kings. And instead of, when he goes to the king of kings, he doesn't just ask. He starts by adoring this God. He prays to God and declares who he is. One of the things that I've learned this past summer, many of you maybe don't know this, but I took some prayer coaching from Dr. Daniel Henderson. And it's really revolutionized my prayer life and I think our church because um, I always started with requests, right? I always started with just praying for things, my needs. And instead of request-based prayers, I've been challenged to have worship-based prayers, to start off with acknowledging who God is first. And if you think about it, that's how Jesus taught us to pray, right? Remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Have, has, did Jesus teach us in those, those, those first few lines, is anything about request? No. It's all about God being holy. He's our Father. It's all about Him ruling in our life. It's all about the fact that we want what He wants to be done here. And so you think about it. I mean, just think about it in your own life. Do you like it when you come home and the first thing is like, hey, go mow the lawn. Go clean the dishes. Right? Is that what you like? Or do you rather say, hey, how was your day? And then go clean the dishes, right? <laughs> you want to be acknowledged as a person who has value and that, that is loved and that is cared about and declared, you know? And so this is the same with God. God wants to be acknowledged about who he is and how much we love him. We don't treat him as a slave. He wants to be acknowledged first. And what's he acknowledged of? Well, Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven. Now that's important on two fronts. First of all, his location. God is everywhere, but his manifest presence is in heaven, which means that he's transcended. He rises above the earth. He rises above your problem. I need that. You need that. And it also helps us because he sees the bigger picture. There can be times when you're like so caught in the mess and I'm so caught in the mess and we don't see it and we wonder where God's doing anything when he's like, just hold on. I'm just clearing out this first. And then we'll, we'll move ahead. But it's not just that God is in heaven. It says the God of heaven. Heaven is always a place of good, isn't it? Because God is the source of good. And so him being the God of heaven, meaning that everything good comes from heaven, that he is, he's the God who's transcendent, but he's also good. And yet it's not just his location that's helpful. It's also his, his labors. It says the great and awesome God. One of the things that we try to do here as a staff and as elders and as a church, as we try to tell God stories. What has God done this week? How has God been working in your life? Right, Kyle? That's how we start our prayer, our always, every Wednesday. We want to tell all the good things that God's been doing, all of his works. And so this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's saying how great and awesome God is. Despite, now you think about this. This is, this is crazy. Despite the fact that his family, look at verse, look at verse 3. 
the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. And then it goes on to say, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and the gates are destroyed. And you might think, well, why would Nehemiah be saying that God is great and awesome? His people are in trouble and his, his pla- the place of worship and his city is seemingly destroyed. Nehemiah is, is living countercultural to what many in our culture would live in. Many of us like to blame God for our problems. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He takes ownership and he directs us back to God. And he reminds us in the prayer that God keeps his covenant and steadfast love. Actually, God did bring the remnant back. Yes, they're in trouble, but look how far he's got taken them. They were 70 years in Babylon, and now God in exile, and now God has, has brought them back. He keeps his covenant. He loves us. He loves us. And then look at the last part of the verse. It says, His love is with those who love him and keep his covenants. God's commands keep us close to his love if we keep them. And so we could say this, God's location, his labors, his love, and even his laws, even his laws, his rules, all make him worthy to be praised. So before you bring your family's problem to God, the first thing you have to do is you go to God first. You go to him and praise him and worship him. Not trying to manipulate him. Can you butter up God? Can you say, hey God, you're really great. Now give me this stuff. He sees through that. So this is not Nehemiah trying to butter up God, manipulate him, but it was sincere. You'll be overwhelmed when you start to think about how great God is. He's bigger than your family's problem. He's bigger than creepy Uncle Harry, right? I truly believe in trying to lead our church to have a grander vision, a greater vision of who our God is. By having this vision of God's character, we're going to learn that he's holy. And I think this is what, what, what happens in Nehemiah's mind next. Look what it says in verses 6 through 8. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house has sinned. Now let me explain um, that verse 6, first of all. Because um, it would seem that Nehemiah is indicating that God is aloof, that he's inattentive. Why would he be praying, God, pay attention. Give attention to your, your servant, to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your, your servant's as we read later on in, in verse 11, to delight to fear in your name. Well, why is Nehemiah asking God to be attentive? Isn't God always listening? Like, God's the only true multitasker. We could all be praying at once, and God could hear all of our prayers, and he could answer all of them, and he could do this exponentially around the world with 7 billion people. He can do that. That's how great our God is. So why is Nehemiah saying, hey, pay attention to my prayers? I think the reason is Nehemiah's got to a place of desperation. Look back at verse 4. After Nehemiah had heard about all the family troubles, he said, I heard these words. I sat down and wept and mourned for what? Days. Have you ever like 
mourned and wept for days over something that's going on in your life and in your family's life? It's so distressing to you. And Nehemiah comes to this place, which God often does. God seems maybe aloof that he hasn't been paying attention, when in reality he's putting you in this place where you just, you recognize that he's all that you need. When God seems inattentive, he may be the most attentive because, because we're paying attention to him and him alone. This is not, does not mean that God's needy for our attention, but instead he wants to deal with all the stuff that have been hindering, hindering in our lives between us and him and having intimacy with him and following him. And in Nehemiah's case, Nehemiah's come to the place where I need to start confessing. So he confesses his own sin and he confesses his family's sin. If we were going to contrast with Ezra, which we studied in the springtime, Ezra confessed the sins of the people, but there's a difference because, see, Nehemiah actually confesses his own sin as well. He considered himself in the circle of all the sins of his forefathers. Nehemiah was a man who didn't just look out the window, but he looked in the mirror and he said, well, I've sinned as well. And what's also peculiar about that is he's over in Persia. He's serving the king. He's not in deep trouble. doesn't seem like it. But he cares about his family. What's also peculiar about it is that he's a eunuch, which means that he's single and not able to have children. See, back in that day, um, those who were in the inner court, who were unmarried, they were often eunuchs so that they could not have any dalliances with, with, the, with the king's harem. That would be a power play. Remember that in the story of Absalom? How he slept with his father's concubines and wives? So, you think about this. Nehemiah is confessing the sins of the past and the present, knowing that he would probably never have children himself. But he's still concerned about his family. What's a good, great lesson for whether you're married or single that you, you care about your family? What a good lesson for us. Now before we start thinking about praying for our own family, I need to address something that I've been wrestling with for many years. And the whole concept of generational sin. You might be going, well, why is Nehemiah confessing sins of his, of, of his forefathers? Do we need to do that? Something I've been wrestling with. Have you ever thought about that question before? And I thought, is there such a thing as generational sin? Well, actually, you think about it. When, you, when we first start reading in the Bible, we start to discover this. There's a description of generational sin. Remember Abraham? Remember when, when he was going into a new land and he was scared that they were going to kill him and take his beautiful wife, Sarah? And so what did he do? He lied about it, right? He's like, that's not really my wife, that's my sister. I don't know. That, obviously, they didn't go really well for Abraham, I'm sure, for the days following. And then, if you keep reading in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah had a son, Isaac. And Isaac uses the same strategy when he goes in and meets with Abimelech. And... He says, uh, this is Rebecca. She's my sister. 
This is the same thing their daddy did, right? And then you continue to, to read in Genesis, and you read about Jacob. Jacob's name means deceiver. And he lies to Isaac about receiving the blessing. He tricks him, right? Remember in the story, he puts on, you know, the, the, um, the, the garments that would cause him to think that he was very hairy, like his brother Esau, and he steals and lies about the blessing. And so from generation, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember, these are the patriarchs, these are the stalwarts, we see generational sin. We could track other characters of, of, of sin, sexual morality, with David and many wives, Solomon, the trouble they had with women. There can be these generational sins. In fact, it's actually prescribed in the Ten Commandments. Look at what it says in Exodus 25 through 6. God says, you shall not bounce down to them, that's idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And don't, did you catch that? That last phrase It's very similar to the prayer that Nehemiah prays, right? God loves to shower his love on those who love him, but... God deals with idol chasing. It's hatred toward God. And it also often has generational consequences. I mean, you think about it. Maybe there's dispositions towards alcoholism because of your parents or grandparents. That's one of the reasons why we don't drink. Because Lori's grandfather, before he gave his life to Christ, really struggled with alcohol. So some of us are more prone to the sins of our fathers and mothers and others. But here's the thing. All of us can find hope if we confess those sins to God. God's grace is available to us all. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Nehemiah, if you think about this, he's the second in the kingdom, and yet he's confessing the sins of his poor family in Jerusalem. Each is responsible to confess their sins before God. There, the Bible doesn't teach purgatory where you can pray your family members out of hell or get them into heaven. The Bible makes it clear in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. So we're all responsible. I want you to make this clear. We're all responsible for our own sins. But we can stand as representative of our family and say, enough is enough in this generation. It's a new day. It's a new day. This is starting to happen more and more, not just in the church, but outside the church. Remember when the conservative government a few years ago stood and said, we have as, as, a, as a country done wrong with the aboriginal peoples. Remember that? That's called identificational repentance. We as a church did this a few years ago when, when there was a man who abused some children and went to jail for it and wrote a letter asking for forgiveness. And as a church, we forgave him. It's called corporate forgiveness. And so we've been thinking as a staff and as elders what are things as we try to apply God's word to our own lives as a church? What are some areas that we need to confess? 
And so here's some things that we, we came up with, and I'll just, I'll just read them to you. We sense that we should seek forgiveness for complacency, a lack of confronting truth, a bent towards the celebrity culture, a lack of patience for the fallen and struggling, self-importance, a lack of killing sacred cows. Vegetarians are allowed to kill sacred cows too, by the way. Prayerlessness, idolatry, and a lack of evangelism. There's probably more, but those are the ones that God put pressed upon our hearts. So could I, could I just pray right now uh, as representative on behalf of you as a church to seek God and ask for forgiveness for those things? Let's pray. God of heaven, gracious, merciful, abounding in love, we come to you through the name and shed blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek forgiveness for complacency, for lack of confronting truth, for lack of patience with those who don't have it all together and who have fallen, for seeking celebrities, in our culture, Christian and otherwise, for self-importance, for not killing sacred cows, for a prayerlessness, for idolatry and a lack of evangelism. Please forgive us by your grace. And if you agree with me, please say amen. Amen. And today, if you need to seek forgiveness for your family, you can do that. You can represent your family. I'm going to ask that you please stand and I want us to pray this prayer out loud. I led people in an individual way to pray through these prayers. But you can see them up on the screen. I want you to pray um, this out loud with me. Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I, and then say your full, your whole full name, Jonathan Edward Stairs, you would say your name. Full name. <laughs> As the current representative of my family, assume responsibility for the sins of my ancestors and humbly repent for their disobedience in the name of Jesus Christ, who paid for their sins as well as mine. I confess the following sins of my ancestors. And whatever God is bringing to mind, just confess those things to right now out loud. Legalism. Hmm. Sexual morality, alcoholism, abuse, God. Mm. Bring those before the Lord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's keep praying. I renounce, reject, and disown all the sins of my ancestors and repent of their beliefs, actions, and unrighteous behavior. I ask you to break all curses my family may be under and we will no longer live under their authority because we belong to Jesus Christ. I no longer want anything to do with these family sins. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to close and seal all doors that have been opened to me and my offspring from now till Jesus returns. Seal them with the true blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Wow. I believe that heaven heard these prayers. The God of heaven. This can be a new day for your family. Now we can go forward and we can confess that it's Jesus. It's Jesus 
who can restore us and make us successful. See, it's, it's the Lord God we turn to. I believe seeking the omnipotent, omnipotent God empowers us to go to human powers. And so today, maybe there's something that God's been impressing upon your heart that you need to go to somebody who's in that powerful position. Nehemiah ends off his prayer by saying, God, would you grant me the, the mercy to go to this great man? Maybe there's somebody in your life that you need to go to now that you're clean and talk to them. Maybe confront them, maybe challenge them, maybe ask on behalf of others. And why would we do this? Because this is what Jesus did for us. He went to the God of heaven and he acted on our behalf. He, first of all, he sought forgiveness. Remember on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And then he recognized that power. When he was with, before Pilate, he also says in John 19, verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. That's true for you too. You belong to God. You belong to the God of heaven. And you go in his name and by his authority. So this week, there are people in your life that you need to go to and talk to about whatever God's been putting on your heart. And this is why today is a new day. See, when your family's in a mess, it's time to take your sin to God and confess and find hope, find restoration. He's the one who can give you success. God is greater than all our sins and all of our regrets. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to pray right now that we would, we would, we would sing this new song with, um, with a deep understanding of God's hope and his grace. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I know your timing, timing is perfect. But Lord, I pray even today, this week, God, that, that things were so entangled, so messy in our families. Lord, would you do restoration work this week? We're asking it for this week, God. We don't want one more day where people are living in a waywardness from you. And it starts with us, God. Today we've confessed and we know that we, we, can, we are restored to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.